Well, hello this evening. My name is Taylor Bodo, and this is the third of uh, the third food for thought that we've done. The first week we did uh, is atheism reasonable, and we looked at two of the most popular forms of atheism and asked asked some questions. You know, oftentimes um, people will cast doubt on faith or want to ask skeptical questions, and so we we thought it might be interesting to say what happens when you when you question the questioner, when you're skeptical of the skeptical. Um, and so that was the initial topic. Um, then the second meeting, we talked about Jesus among other options. And so we sort of reviewed what we had talked a little bit about, some atheistic options. We talked a little bit about um, a worldview called Eastern Pantheistic Monism, um, which really undergirds Buddhism and Hinduism. And uh, just talked about, you know, what's the difference between the Christian worldview and some of these other options, and why might you choose to follow Jesus instead of these other things? <clears throat> I've also been grateful. Um, we've been doing uh, live performances of different music. We've had, uh, in the past, uh, when we've done Alpha, there's been some, some drawings, some visual art stuff. And uh, so if you have some kind of art that you would like to share with the community, um, this is kind of a part of the discussion in a way. And so you're, you're um, welcome to, to share that. So just let us know. Um, the topic for tonight is, is the Bible historically reliable? And the last couple of times that I spoke, I spoke for a good long time, uh, about an hour. Uh, tonight I'm going to actually try to be a bit more brief. Um, there's a lot that I would love to say about this. And um, um, and this is actually something that I've, I've done quite a bit of reading on. And uh, as I, I found it difficult to try to narrow down what I might want to say tonight. But I'm going to try to be somewhat brief and then uh, make a little space for questions because you all might have your own questions, uh, your, your own places where you're coming from. And so that might make it more interesting. So <clears throat> we'll consider this the appetizer and then your, your questions will be the entree. Um, so, when we're focusing on this question, is the Bible historically reliable, um, that's actually a really massive question, because what some people don't realize about the Bible is that the Bible isn't a book, it's a library. Um, it's a library of books. There's all kinds of books in the Bible um, of various genres, sometimes uh, separated by thousands of years in terms of when they were written. And so, um, so that's actually a really complex question. I actually thought a way of narrowing it, just so that we could kind of wrap our minds around something tonight, is, um, is to focus on the Gospels. Um, and those are specifically um, the four um, sort of um, eyewitness um, histories, uh, biographies, uh, in, in an ancient form of it, um, of the person of Jesus, and, and ask um, are these reliable witnesses to who Jesus is and, and to the events that actually happened? Um, so since we don't have the time or the bandwidth uh, really to focus tonight on the entire Bible, um, uh, you know, I wanted to ask, well, what, what about these stories about Jesus? If, if, if these, are these true? And, and I think the, part of the reason why this might be a helpful thing to focus on is because if the stories about Jesus are true, then we get the rest of it kind of thrown in. Um, so let me explain. Uh, if Jesus is um, truly God made flesh, if Jesus truly rose from the dead, if he truly did miracles, if he truly was who he claimed to be, um, then, um, then we also know about him that he treated what we call the Old Testament as scripture. Um, he commonly quoted from the, the, Old, the Old Testament, and he talked about how these texts pointed to him. Um, 
And then also, in terms of the rest of the New Testament, he was the one who commissioned the apostles to teach in his name, you know, and to go and spread the gospel. And so um, you kind of get both the New Testament and the Old Testament, if it can be firmly established, that the gospels are a reliable witness about Jesus. And so that's why I think it will be helpful to, to focus in, not just for the sense of narrowing in, but um, uh, because Jesus is... Um, what we what we said a few weeks ago, the epistemological center of the Christian faith. So, um, epistemology and philosophy um, is another word for how do, how do we know what we know? How do we know what we claim to know? Um, and um, for example, how do we know that the the uh, that the Bible, that the Old Testament, is really God's word? Well, if Jesus is who He said He is, and He treated it as God's word, then we know that that it's actually God's word. If Jesus is not who he said he, he said he is, then we have to evaluate it on the basis of some other criteria, you know, because the Jews would still say that the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, is the Word of God, but there would need to be some other kind of cr- criteria, some other way of approaching it. And so I actually think it's a, it's a very relevant focus for us tonight. Um, now, um, one of the things that I, I want to say, just, I don't want to spend too much time on this. In fact, I've probably made too many slides about this. Um, it, um, because it, um, there, there are some among the more like super skeptical and, uh, and pretty seriously historically uninformed, there are some who would suggest that perhaps Jesus didn't exist at all. You know, that maybe Jesus is just this legend or Jesus is like um, our sort of mythical version of the best version of ourselves or something like that. Um, and I've heard people say this before. Um, but there are actually um, not only Christian sources about Jesus, which um, have their own historical value, but there are actually uh, many non-Christian sources. Um, I, I actually, um, I was watching an interview one time with um, uh, former Oxford, I think he's at the University of St. Andrews now, um, scholar N.T. Wright, and he was invited to do a TV piece on the topic, um, Who is Jesus? And he showed up there and he was ready to kind of you know, share what he knew um, from ancient history about who the historical Jesus is. And he learned when he got there that the way in which they were asking this question was, who is Jesus, man or myth? And uh, he said when he learned that, that was, the, that was their perspective. Like, did, did Jesus actually exist at all? Um, he was just like, this is so absurd. I don't, I don't think I can stay for your program. I, I think you called the wrong person. You know, because anybody who's, who's ever studied ancient history, anybody who studied these documents would know, uh, at the very least, that there was a person named Jesus Christ that existed uh, in the land of Israel in the first century. And that there are not only Christian sources that I mentioned, there's Jewish, um, there's uh, pagan sources for this as well. Um, and they all testified to um, Jesus' life. Um, and, and to basic um, things about him, his death, his purported miracles, his purported resurrection, the way that he was um, worshipped as a god. So just, just for example, Josephus, who's a Jewish historian, um, he, uh, he was born shortly after Jesus was purported to raise from the dead. Um, and he, um, he wrote, uh, he was a very, very um, important Jewish historian. Um, he was not a disciple of Jesus, um, but he respected him. He said, now there was about this time, as he's going through his history, Jesus, a wise man, if it's lawful to call him a man, for he was a doer of wonderful works, a teacher of such men as received the truth with, which, with pleasure. He drew over to, uh, to him both many of the Jews and many of the Gentiles. 
So this was a Jewish historian's summary of the person of Jesus. Now, um, I want to show you a quote by um, the most famous Roman historian at the time, uh, a man named Tacitus. And he was born um, around A.D. 52, or maybe 53, 54. Um, But um, when he's giving his major historical work, he talks about how how the emperor Nero... uh, um, set the set Rome on fire, um, and then later tried to blame it on someone. He didn't know who to blame it on, and, uh, and at least Tacitus was an honest enough historian to be like, "Yeah, it was actually Nero, but he tried to blame it on Christians." Now Tacitus, as you can see, doesn't have a very high view of Christianity, but um, but he at least knows the basic outline. He says. Therefore, to scotch the rumor, Nero substituted as culprits and punished with the utmost refinements of cruelty, a class of men loathed for their vices. Now, they were hated by a lot of pagans. They were considered to be impious. Now, we need to remember that at this time, Christianity, and you know, it's, it, right now it's the largest world religion, but at the time, the idea of not being willing to burn incense to the pagan deities was viewed as impious. The idea of not burning incense to the deity of the emperor who was worshipped as a god was viewed as impious. And so they were, uh, people were really skeptical of them. These are moral people who aren't willing to worship multiple deities. Um, and, uh, and he said, um, A class of men loathed for their vices whom the crowd styled as Christians. Christus, from whom they got their name, had been executed by sentence of the pro, uh, procurate, procurator Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor. Now, both those things we also get from the Gospels. Now, he thinks Jesus' name is Christus. Of course, we know Christos um, is actually a a Greek title, which just means Messiah. It wasn't Jesus' actual name. It's it's not like like Christ was Jesus' last name or something. My name is Jesus Christ, like Christ is my last name. No, um, but it, it, it was a title. It was kind of like another way of saying King Jesus, right? Um... And, uh, but he, he thought of it as his name. He said, Christos, from whom they got their name, had been executed um, by Pontius Pilate when Tiberius was emperor. These, these are things that we learn in the Gospels themselves. And the pernicious superstition was checked for a short time. He said, you know, they snuffed him out. And for a short time, you know, people stopped talking about him. Only to break out afresh. How did that happen, right? Um, not only in Judea... The home of the plague, now Judea is the region where Jerusalem is from, and so we're learning a lot about history right here, aren't we? Um, even, even from somebody who's not a Christian, who's kind of an enemy of, of this faith. The home of the plague, but in Rome itself, he doesn't have a very high opinion of Rome either, where he says, where all horrible and shameful things in the world collect and find a home. That's his, that's his view of his hometown. Now, uh, now I, wanna, I also want to um, share with you uh, a snippet from... Um, a man named Pliny the Younger, who was uh, the governor of Bithynia um, in the early 2nd century. So he wrote a letter to Emperor Trajan in AD 112, and he was asking, what do you want me to do with these Christians? And he explains to them, him in this letter, what I, do, what I usually do is I tell them that they need to burn incense and curse Christ. If they're willing to do that, then I let them go. But if they're not willing to do that, I don't know, I, I beat them, I put them to death, you know, whatever. He's kind of like trying to, trying to say, like, he's like, because they're, just, they're so obstinate, he said, you know. Um, and he said, uh, and he, he investigated and found out that a lot of the rumors that were spoken about these people called Christians um, were not actually true. 
um, he, you know, he talks about how, you know, they were, they were um, torturing certain Christians and, and got these female deacons to share what was really going on. And he's like, yeah, they're not really doing what people think they're doing. People thought that um, early Christians, for example, were, um, um, were having like mass orgies and, and uh, were sleeping with their, with their family members and stuff like that because they called themselves brothers and sisters and they had love feasts. You know, but that was just them enjoying meals together. And, uh, and uh, they also thought that they might be cannibals because they talked about eating the body and blood of Jesus, right? Because um, they didn't recognize uh, about the Lord's Supper. And so it says, uh, he says at one point in the letter to Emperor Trajan, they were in the habit of meeting on uh, a certain fixed day before it was light, which we know is Sunday, the Lord's Day, um, when they sang an anthem to Christ as God. So, all right, now, now just kind of pause, time out for one second, because sometimes critical scholars will want to say, oh yeah, you know, these, these Christians who claimed that, that they believed that Jesus was God, that was like later, that was like Emperor Constantine, you know, and the you know, Nicene Council in 325 AD. It's like already, even an enemy of Christians is like, yeah, they get together and they sing a song to Jesus as it, like, like, they're, like he's their God. Right? So even he's acknowledging there's like worship going on right? of this, of this man, Jesus. And he said, And bound themselves by a solemn oath, sacramentum, the word, not to commit any wicked deed, but to abstain, abstain from all fraud, theft, theft, and adultery, never to break their word, after which it was their custom to separate, and then meet again to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent kind. All right. So in other words... <clears throat> From these quotes, we can see that uh, Jesus was certainly a man <laughs> who lived in the first century. Um, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, as the Gospels claim. He was purported to be raised. In fact, it seemed like his movement had been quenched, but somehow it sprung up again. Um, and he's kind of wondering, okay, how did that happen? Um, it talks about um, the purported divinity of Jesus already at this early age. Um, all this was widely known at his, uh, during his day, even his reputation as a miracle worker. Um, even Josephus respected, even as a Jew, as, an, as a non-Christian, respected the idea that, yeah, this guy seemed to be some kind of miracle worker or whatever. Um, now, why is this important? Why is it important that, that there are um, uh, non-Christian historians that, that um, come around and, and cooperate the stories that are, that are shared in the Gospels? Well, because, um, just, just a couple things offhand. Um, one is that, um, for example, in the Quran, which was written about 600 years after the life of Jesus, um, it claims that the New Testament documents got it wrong and that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross. Now, one of the reasons why the Quran claims this is because uh, Muslims revere Jesus as a prophet. And they say, you know, Allah would never allow a prophet of Jesus' stature um, to die um, such a demeaning death. And, you know, for, for Christians, it was, you know, uh, obviously it was viewed as demeaning. It was viewed as a curse to hang upon a tree, all this sort of stuff. But they believed this was the way that we were saved. Now, if we asked ourselves, um, is there any historical basis for the Quran's claim that Jesus actually didn't die on the cross, you'd say, actually, from a historical perspective, you'd have a very, very hard time arguing that case. Because not only do these very, very early documents that end up becoming the New Testament claim that he died on a cross, but so do the Jews, and so do the Romans. 
Every, everything we know about this person um, from history claims that he was crucified. But, but there's another reason why. Um, I, I think that this is important. Um, I, I remember one time I was on FSU's campus, and, um, and some Mormons came up to me, and they were, um, like, evangelizing me, um, you know, and they were sharing their faith and stuff like this. And um, after they had kind of shared for a little while, um, I told them about an article that I read um, that was written by a guy who's a Mormon. Um, he was recently uh, excommunicated, um, but he was, um, an, he was a, um, an archaeologist, and he was educated and, and all this sort of stuff, and he wrote an article claiming that there's no archaeological evidence whatsoever in the United States for any of the facts that are claimed in the Book of Mormon. So, I mean, we're t in, in the Book of Mormon talks about in the United States there's whole civilizations that lived here, you know, these people moved to this place and all this sort of stuff. And, uh, and as an archaeologist, he had kind of come to the point where he said, all right, the only people who believe this stuff is us. And he said, I, I just, there's no evidence for this. Um, I don't think that it's historically true, but he said, religiously, I still identify as Mormon. I want, I want to stay Mormon. Um, and, well, he ended up being excommunicated for understandable reasons. Um, he didn't actually hold the faith, um, even though it was meaningful to him on some sort of personal level. And, um, and I told these guys, to me, um, that seems significant. Because um, when I think about the, the, um, the things that I believe, that I believe... Um, and this man, Jesus Christ, who, who lived and did miracles, and, you know, um, he, he lived in, in, you know, first century uh, Israel or Palestine, however you want to call it, and, um, and he was crucified under this guy named Pontius Pilate, and he was purported to have raised from the dead. And all these historical details, you know, the fact that he went to a town called Capernaum, and there was a town called Bethany, and there was a place called Jerusalem, and there was a temple in that place, and there was people called the Essenes, and there was people called the Sadducees, and there was people called the Pharisees, and all these sorts of things that are referred to in the Gospels, down to even really interesting details. Like, we learned from other sources that the most common name in the first century was Simon, you know, and the second most common name was Joseph. You know, would you know what the most common names in Syria are right now today? You know, um, but but and, and the most common name for females was Mary. Um, and we find these are actually the most common names in the New Testament. Right. So somebody who knew something about that time and place actually wrote these. And, you know, that doesn't mean that Jesus rose from the dead. It doesn't mean that he actually did miracles. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's the son of God, but it does mean that the whole historical world that's constructed around these biblical texts actually was true and actually existed. And I said, um, but, but what you're telling me that I should believe in um, is not believed by anyone. It's not believed by anybody who, who, who's not in your church. It's not believed by Jews. It's not believed by Romans. It's not believed by any, uh, there's no other historians that claim the things that you claim. And we can't find these civilizations that you say were here. And, um, I don't think these guys were expecting it. You know, they looked a little bit crestfallen. I wasn't trying to give them a hard time. But they told me, well, you have to have faith. And I said, I do have faith. Um, but it, I said, it seems to me um, like um, the kind of God that you're telling me I need to believe in sounds like he's trying to trick people. You know, um, and, um, and, and I just don't think that that's, you know, the idea that, um, that our faith needs to be against um, you know, any, any empirical evidence or against any reason 
I don't, I don't see why that has to... Now, faith transcends reason. Reason can't lead you all the way. The empirical data can't lead you all the way. Um, but it doesn't seem right that you're, asking, you're telling me I have to put my faith in something um, that even our five senses, which if God is our creator or God, God gave us our five senses, um, prove otherwise. So, uh, so I think it's an important point. Now, um, so non-Christian sources testify about Jesus. Third, um, there is crazy massive manuscript evidence for, um, for the New Testament. Um, you can actually click, click over one. Um, now, um, I want to I put these things into perspective um, and so, so there's a chart here that I want you to see. Um, when it comes to ancient uh, resource, uh, when it comes to ancient manuscripts, um, uh, Herodotus, his histories, um, they were written around uh, four or five hundred BC. Um, the number of copies we have of these manuscripts, um, we have about eight, and the first ones we have were written about like fourteen hundred years after after the, the original history was written. And so, so, you know, we don't have that many resources, but this isn't, this isn't uncommon for ancient writing because, you know, these papyrus and stuff that they were writing on, they fade away very easily. It's, it's not uncommon. Actually, this is, this is, this is um, very common that we will believe things like, you know, um, you know, Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon or, or whatever on the basis of uh, resources or histories that we have very, very scant manuscript evidence for. Um, that, so we get that in Julius Caesar's Gaelic War. It was written about, um, you know, 50 to 100 years um, uh, B.C. Um, and our earliest copy we have of it, um, the, you know, the, the, the earliest that um, existent manuscript we have is around A.D. 900, so about 1,000 years after the fact. And we only have 10 of them. And the reason why it's important, the amount of manuscripts that you have, is because um, the more manuscripts you have, the more that you can check them against one another to see if they're saying the same thing, right? So if you find something, if you find, you know, something that has completely, that's saying completely different things, then, then you're going to be less likely to trust that specific bit of history, right? Well, in the case of the New Testament, which was written between A.D. 40 and A.D. 100, the earliest manuscript, the earliest um, uh, piece of papyrus that we have comes from A.D. 130. So, like, only a few decades after it was written, okay? And uh, it's, a, it's, a, um, it's a piece of the Gospel of John. Interestingly, um, some critical scholars had believed for a long while that the Gospel of John might have been written as late as about A.D. 200. And when they discovered some of these earlier manuscripts, they were like, oh, whoops, um, it was actually written earlier because this, this papyrus is actually dated to uh, around 125 or 130 AD. And uh, the amount of manuscripts that we have is about 5,300. Um, and so there are so many, there's, there's so many volumes and volumes and volumes of manuscripts. One of the reasons is because these were viewed as sacred texts and because it was a text-based tradition, people would collect these manuscripts because they would preach on them. So small churches would collect the letters of Paul, or they would collect Luke, or they would collect the book of Acts, and they would preach on them. And, I, you know, famously, there are certain variants in the New Testament. You could go through your New Testament, and you could look, and, and it says, you know, it doesn't know, you know, it's, it's, you know, some manuscripts say that there was two people there, some manuscripts say one people there. The variants are actually very small indeed. 
So um, a half of a percentage of the manuscripts, about, about a half of a percentage of the words have any variant. So it's the, the bulk of what's said is really holds up. And, um, and the fact that um, uh, uh, the fact of the matter is that no uh, major article of Christian doctrine is threatened by any of these um, variant manuscripts. So they're, they're not things that would like, um, you know, um, sort of undermine the idea that Jesus is the Son of God or that Jesus rose from the dead or, 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 or anything like that. And so um, I'm, I'm going to show you a, a quote by Fenton Hort. Uh, he says, In the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writing. So um, he, he, the... the um, the fact that we have almost identically what was originally written um, is just demonstrably true. I mean, if, if this science, if the science of, the, of manuscript study that's going on here has any you know, value whatsoever, then we have more reason to believe in that the testimony of, of the New Testament that we can turn open and read today, of course we're going to read it translated in English and it was originally written in Greek, but, um, but the fact of the matter is you're reading... Um, you can you can bet on it. You're reading essentially what was written down in the first century, um, and we have better reason to believe that than we do about any other ancient resource. Um, now, there's an, another quote um, by uh, Sir Frederick Kenyon, and he was an English paleographer and classic, classicist. Um, uh, he said the interval then between the dates of the original composition. And the earliest extant evidence becomes so small as to be, in fact, negligible. And the last foundation for any doubt that the scriptures have come down to us substantially as they were written have now been removed. Both the authenticity and the general integrity of the books of the New Testament may be regarded as finally established. Um, So... um, that's, that's, that's my third point, that the manuscript evidence for the New Testament is not only strong, it's the strongest manuscript evidence um, for any ancient resource known to mankind. Um, I, 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 that's not an exaggeration. In fact, a very good book to read about this, um, if you're interested, um, is uh, called The New Testament Documents, Are They Reliable?, written by a guy named F.F. F. Bruce. Um, he was a very uh, famous scholar in England in the middle of the 20th century. And um, it was uh, recently written um, with a new foreword by N.T. Wright, who's a contemporary scholar. And he asked the question, is F.F. Bruce reliable um, in the foreword? And he says, uh, yeah, actually he is. We should still listen to this guy because the information that he presents is still true. Um, now, um, I, wanna, I, I also want to deal with, okay, so if what we have... Um, is essentially, uh, we can just kind of bank on it, that it's what was written in terms of the New Testament. Um, we, still have to deal with the, we still have to deal with the issue of, well, what if, what if it was changed? I mean, you know, very sensational things are recorded in the Gospels. You mean, you know, like the multiplication of loaves and Jesus raising people from the dead and healing lepers and himself um, raising on the third day, um, him being worshipped by his monotheistic disciples, um, how do we know that it's not just legendary? In fact, um, in, in, uh, in world religions, there's other kind of legendary things that happen. Like there's, um, there's birth narratives of the Buddha where he kind of jumps out and he starts skipping along the ground and everywhere he steps, a lotus flower grows. 
Um, and, uh, and so, you know, how do we know that um, the New Testament isn't basically the Christian version of that? Um, well, one thing that's interesting to just kind of compare them is that um, there, there's nothing was written. There were only oral traditions about the Buddha for at least 400 years after he lived. And so nothing was written about him for at least 400 years. In Jesus' case, things began to be written about him by the Apostle Paul between 15 and 25 years after he lived. And we also know that he claimed the same things about Jesus that are later written down in the Gospels, but come from even earlier um, eyewitness testimony that that was handed down. Um, So if we look, for example... um, so essentially, um, what, what I'm saying, uh, that the thesis of this part, is that the Gospels are too early to be legends. They're too early to be legends. They didn't have time to become legends. Um, so um, if you look, for example, as, as I did on my sermon on Sunday, at um, a passage by the Apostle Paul, it's 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8. The Corinthian church that he's writing to, this is about 25 years after Jesus' purported um, resurrection, the Corinthian church that he's writing to, they don't believe in resurrection. They're like, that's not our worldview. You know, we were raised in this kind of Greco-Roman. We believe in, you know, that the soul lives on, but there's not going to be a new body. What are you talking about, Paul? This doesn't make sense. And, um, but look at what Paul says. He says in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. So Paul, Paul's not even the origin of this. I mean, they're receiving it very early from Paul, but he's like, I actually received this myself that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep, which is a, you know, just kind of um, shorthand for their dead. Um, he said, but most of them are alive. He said, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to one untimely born, he appeared to me and Paul says elsewhere that he's the one, the risen Jesus is the one that he got his gospel from. Now, um, it's actually really easy um, to kind of skip by a passage like this and not wrap our minds around it because um, we're really in danger of missing like how astounding these claims are. Paul is saying that there were actually multiple appearances. This wasn't just like some mass hallucination. There were multiple, even sometimes individual appearances of the risen Jesus Um, He's saying that Jesus appeared not only to him privately, but appeared to over 500 people at one time. He said, most of whom are still alive. Now, Corinth is not that far from Jerusalem. Corinth is not that far from Galilee. So if you wanted to, you know, travel there and verify that for yourself, I mean, Paul had traveled from there to get to Corinth. And so Paul was saying something very astounding. He was saying, like, not only that Jesus um, appeared to me, and you can't verify that with anybody else, but he had separate, separate appearances to not just dozens, but hundreds of other people, and you could actually just go ask them if you wanted to. So um, all the Corinthians had to do was take a short trip to Galilee, and they could meet hundreds more eyewitnesses. And Paul wouldn't say this. He wouldn't say this. Um, unless there truly were hundreds of people who claimed to see the resurrected Jesus, um, who talked with him and ate with him, as they said. He wouldn't say it unless it was true. In fact, there's a, a really important book that was written not many years back called Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham. 
And uh, in this book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, he mentions that even in the Gospels, they name drop people at times. So sometimes when Jesus heals somebody, it's just um, you don't get to you don't know who who he healed. It's like he healed three lepers. We don't know who their names were or anything like that. But sometimes specific people are are healed. He healed Bartimaeus. He uh, you know he raised Jairus's daughter from the dead. You know, um, in fact. Um, uh, um, in the case of Simon of Cyrene, his parents are, I mean, so, excuse me, his kids are actually mentioned, which is interesting because it's basically like um, the Gospels are inviting you to go uh, and check this out with his kids who still live in that area. So I'm going to read to you from this book, The Reason for God. I'm just going to read a paragraph from you, um, written by um, uh, Tim Keller. Um, I highly recommend this book. This is a really good introduction, and there's a short chapter um, called... Uh, it seeks to answer skeptical questions. One of the skeptical questions is you can't take the Bible literally. And um, there, it's about 10 pages on that topic. So you can grab one of those and look at it for yourself. Um, but he points out um, this, uh, this way in which um, the gospel writers are trying to, because the gospels were written somewhere between 40 and 70 years. They were, I mean, the, the um, eyewitness testimony goes back further, but they were written somewhere between 40 and 70 years. Um, after Jesus uh, rose from the dead. Um, and so um, there was a lot of people that were still alive when these were being written, um, or, or their kids were alive, or the, the stories were still known in these actual towns that, that are name-dropped throughout the Gospels. And so um, he, says, he says this, Mark, for example, says that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross to Calvary, quote, was the father of Alexander and Rufus, Mark 15, 21. He said, there's no reason for the author to include such names, unless the readers know or could, have, or could have access to them. Mark is saying, Alexander and Rufus vouch for the truth of what I'm telling you. If you want to, ask them. So this is, this is how um, uh, early history's eyewitness accounts tried to cite their sources. It was like a, um, almost like an ancient bibliography, you might say. So Paul also appears to readers to check with living witnesses. We just talked about this. If they want to establish the truth of what he's saying about the events of Jesus' life, um, Paul refers to a body of 500 eyewitnesses who saw the risen Christ at once. You can't write in a document designed for public reading unless there really were surviving witnesses whose testimony agreed and who could confirm what the author said. All this decisively refutes the idea that the Gospels were anonymous, collective, evolving oral traditions. Instead, there were oral histories taken down from the mouths of living eyewitnesses who preserved the words and deeds of Jesus in great detail. Now, um, the next point that I want to make, and this is made also, um, actually, um, uh, it's, it's made strongly, if, if you guys are really interested in this topic, you can check out that book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard DeBauchum, but it's, it's, uh, it's a little bit more weighty. Um, he makes this point that um, the genre of realistic fiction didn't exist in the ancient world. Like, there, there's nothing, there's, there's no sources we have that are written in that genre. When there was fiction, it was high fiction. And so there wasn't much character development. There wasn't much unnecessary details. Um, Peter Kraif, the renowned professor of philosophy at Boston College, put it this way. He said, if the resurrection was invented, then these first century peasants and fishermen who wrote the Gospels, quote, all independently invented the new genre of realistic fantasy 19 centuries before it was reinvented in the 20th. So the idea is the genre of realistic fiction did not yet exist. To quote from C.S. Lewis, when he shares about his own conversion, 
He was an atheist professor in Oxford, and he talked about how um, you know, the first time he re-engaged with the Gospels after reading them as a young boy in Sunday school when he decided that they weren't true. Um, and, and this is what he says about his experience reading the Gospels. He says, I've been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. In fact, just to say this about C.S. Lewis, if you read his biography, the guy's sick, man. I mean, he started, he learned Latin at a really young age and was reading all these things in the original languages. And in fact, one of C.S. Lewis's biggest enemies at Oxford um, said of him, I hate that guy, but he's the best read man in all of England. <laughs> so this was another professor who didn't like him saying this about C.S. Lewis. So C.S. Lewis is like, look, I've read all this stuff. He said, I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else some unknown ancient writer, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic realistic narrative. So, because what we get in the Gospels, it's really interesting. We get details. It's like, you know, uh, the storm was raging and Jesus was asleep on a cushion. You know, it'll be like, Jesus sat down and he took a breath. You know, and, and uh, there, there's all these little details that let you know. Um, and when Jesus, uh, uh, um, when uh, Peter sees, when Peter's out on the lake and he sees the resurrected Jesus, um, he has this miraculous catch of fish. I can't remember the exact number, but it's like, and they caught 153 fish or something, something like that, you know. So the Gospels um, gives very, very specific details, which is something uh, on a level in which you never see in early fictional accounts. Um, that, and this, this idea that we're just going to sort of put these details in there, you know, just to make it seem more, more realistic, um, is, is just not something that, that, that's not something that the ancients did. They didn't understand that, that genre of writing. In fact, I mentioned in my sermon on Sunday that um, one, of the, one of the things that would have been really embarrassing for them is that um, uh, in all four Gospels, women are the first eyewitnesses of the resurrection. And uh, that would have been a big no-no. You don't want to include that in your story if you want people to take it seriously because women were not viewed as reliable witnesses in the first century. Now, we view women as reliable witnesses, but at the time, they didn't. Um, in fact, Joseph, their, their, um, their testimony was not received as valid testimony in a court of law. Um, Josephus, um, the Jewish historian we cited earlier, said that even the testimony of many women together, cumulative, cumulatively, was not to be trusted. And so, um, and so uh, that was the way that they were viewed. And so if you wanted to create a believable story for Jesus raising from the dead, you would never invent the idea that women were the first eyewitnesses. But all four Gospels say that. Why do they say that? Number one, because they weren't invented. And number two, because that was just so widely known, they couldn't change that part of the story. You know, they just knew, hey, this is, this is the way it was. And they became the messengers to the messengers, the apostles to the apostles. Now, um, I just want to close um, on, on one final point um, that I think is easy to miss, um, which is that um, the Gospels, um, if you really read them and engage with them, um, are too undomesticated to have been altered or changed. And what I mean by that, um, let, me, let me quote from, from, uh, from this um, uh, British political figure, uh, Matthew Paris. Uh, he says, uh, I got such huge respect for Jesus because his life was so radical. It was so inconvenient, he said. 
If Jesus had not existed, the church most, most certainly would not have invented him. So why is he saying that? Why is he saying the church would not have invented Jesus? Well, would you want to invent somebody who says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many? You know, in order to be first, you need to be last. You know, now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should wash others' feet. Right? Marx, one of Marx's, um, Karl Marx's critiques of religion is that um, religion is a way of keeping the powerful in power. But that's emphatically not the case in the Gospels. You know, Matthew and Mark and Luke and these evangelists that were going around, they were saying, you know, yes, I'm an apostle of Jesus, and that means that I'm called to love my enemies. And that means that I'm called to a level of, of uh, you know, uh, sexual purity that's completely difficult, you know. And that means that I'm called to serve the least and serve the last, and serve the lost. And I'm called to serve you too, brother, even though you're not a Jew. I'm called to cross cultures, and I'm called to love everybody. And it's like, well, like, it's not like they, they went around preaching, Jesus rose from the dead, so give me all your gold. Right? <laughs> that wasn't their message. In fact, the apostles, uh, as I mentioned on Sunday, um, not only stood to gain nothing um, from teaching what they taught, um, but they, they all ended up facing a martyr's death, uh, one by one, in, in gruesome ways. So it, it wasn't that they stood to gain something. Um, their message was undomesticated. It, it's not the kind of thing that you would just invent. I challenge you, if you've never read Matthew chapters 5 through 7, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' most famous teaching, to read it, uh, spend some time just kind of reading it and meditating on it and ask yourself, is this the kind of thing that I would invent and ask everybody to believe and, and I would teach if this wasn't true? Um, because there's a level of moral purity that Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount that challenges every human being. And that's why this guy, Matthew Paris, says, if Jesus had not existed, the church most certainly would not have invented him because... We wouldn't have been holy enough to invent a guy like Jesus, to invent a guy who said the kinds of things that Jesus said. And I'll just say as a final point, I didn't grow up going to church. Um, when I first started reading the Bible, I encountered things that I, I thought, well, that's really cool. And then I encountered things that I didn't really like and, uh, and things that I didn't want to be true. And I remember um, praying to God because I didn't necessarily, I believed in God, but I didn't necessarily believe that the Bible was, was his word, but I would say to God, if this is true, uh, I pray that you would reveal it to me, um, reveal this to me somehow, and I'll follow you. And um, I can just say that um, there were many things uh, that I would have preferred to not be true, um, that were quite inconvenient for me. Um, but the more that I investigated it, the more that I investigated from a moral perspective, the more that I investigated it from a historical perspective, the more that I investigated it from a spiritual perspective, the more that I came to believe, you know, this man, Jesus, who often says things that I disagree with, is a holier man than I am. And I began to trust him more than I trust myself. And so when we ask the question, um, is this, are the scriptures reliable? There's another dynamic to that. Um, and it, is it, are they reliable? Are they reli is it a reliable guide to life? And I would submit to you that if you took time uh, to actually sit down and study the scriptures, not just as a work of history, um, you would find them to be reliable um, as a guide to life as well. Um, even 
even sometimes being very, very inconvenient. Um, so that's it for me. That's it for the, um, the main presentation. Now, what time is it? 758. Um, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pause there. Um, and um, uh, give us a chance to, um, I think I think some desserts being set out and stuff like that. And um, just before we get into our table groups, I'll ask if there's any sort of immediate questions in terms of follow-up um, from my talk. Um, but uh, we won't spend too much time there because I want to give you guys a chance to talk in your tables. And uh, as usual, um, when I get off, talking about these things and I start going down different cul-de-sacs, I find new cul-de-sacs that I want to go down. And so um, there's, there's much more that I would like to say, more than you can now bear. <laughs> right, we're going to um, just do a little, a little Q&A before you um, continue on with your tables. Maybe there was something that I said that you had a question about or uh, thought or question, comment, mad rant, prophetic utterance. These, these things are, uh, are invited. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, Josephus. Josephus. Right. His name. Mm-hmm. Um, Josephus. Yeah. I'm just yeah. joking. Joe. <laughs> so Joe wrote a book, a Jewish history book, and I've heard um, this criticism about it that Christians early on would get a hold of his works and kind of throw in little tidbits yeah. of their faith within yeah. it. So how can we trust? His unbiased account of things. Yeah. It's being tampered with. That's a great point. Um, and that certainly did happen. Um, and so um, historians have tried to sort of reconstruct um, what, uh, what of Josephus was authentic and what was, um, uh, you know, maybe um, uh, messed with later on. Basically, um, you know, uh, some early Christians, when they read these, these stuff about Josephus, they were like, Jesus is more than that. You should have also said, Blah, 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 you know, and they would write in, you know, he's the son of God, you know, um, and, um, but um, the fact that Jesus is mentioned by Josephus at, at all um, is not really disputed by ancient historians, and because, you know, I'm not an ancient historian, um, uh, you know, I, I know a little bit of, 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 of how they would go about trying to reconstruct that, but um, it's essentially, um, I was just trying to use Josephus to say, uh, G- this guy named Jesus actually existed, um, and he was reported to be like a powerful teacher. Um, he had a movement uh, of Jews and Gentiles. You know, um, uh, whether whether or not Josephus um, called Jesus a miracle worker um, is is maybe up for debate. But it wasn't it wasn't um, uncommon uh, for um, for Jews to recognize that that sort of power at work, even in people that they disagreed with. Um, I, I actually intentionally didn't include um, uh, uh, one of the more controversial quotes from Josephus about Jesus. Um, and uh, actually, that book that I mentioned earlier, um, the New Testament documents, are they reliable? When he quotes from Josephus, he puts in italics anything that's questionable um, and uh, uh, anything that's considered questionable by, by, um, by contemporary historians. Um, but essentially, what's not questioned is whether or not he referred to Jesus at all and basically knew the outline of his life and what was purported to be true about him. Um, yeah. That's a good question. Yeah, Johanna. 
Hey, Pascal. <laughs> All right. She just wanted to know, why do you think, uh, I guess, with the difference in, like, documentary evidence, why are other ancient, like, Roman and Greek histories kind of accepted as factual as far as we can tell? Yeah. And the New Testament is so highly contested. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I think, um, I think probably the main reason for that is, is what's at stake. Um, the New Testament claims things that are um, miraculous, you know, um, the, the idea that, that Caesar crossed the Rubicon um, is, is a historical claim um, that, you know, that it's, it's, it's different than saying that somebody rose from the dead or that somebody healed somebody's eyes. Um, and so the manuscript evidence, um, what, it, what it should do is, is prove that um, we very likely almost exactly have the Bible as it was written, uh, and that we can know that much more than we can about, um, you know, uh, some of these other earlier um, uh, uh, histories and stuff like that. Um, which, which actually, in, in in a lot of these earlier sources, it's interesting. There'll be like way less manuscripts. There'll be like seven manuscripts, and like three of them will like massively disagree with each other. Um, so it, it's actually really interesting how much. Um, the text of the New Testament was preserved from a very young age. They didn't like anybody messing with this at all. Um, but it, what it can't do is, it, you know, the manuscript evidence itself can't tell you that Jesus actually did heal a man born blind or that Jesus actually did raise from the dead. What it can tell you is that um, somebody, uh, is, that, is that this is what was really written about him early on and actually was written about him um, during the time uh, that people were still living who knew him personally um, and could go ask them questions. And, and so that, that sort of, um, it's really meant to debunk this whole idea of, um, of these being completely fanciful stories, which some people really believe. Um, you know, for example, um, um, a few years ago, um, Especially on the on the back heels of like, um, oh, what was the name of that movie um, and, and book? Um, um, the one in the Vatican. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The Illuminati. Or whatever. Yeah, Da Vinci Code. Yeah, Dan Brown. Um, what's it called? The Da Vinci Code. Da Vinci Code. Especially, especially, especially with the Da Vinci Code. Um, people got really excited about these Gnostic gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas. <clears throat> where they really present a different Jesus. A Jesus who was married, a Jesus in the Gospel of Thomas. He says in order for a woman to enter the kingdom of God, she must become like a man. And some of these early Gnostic ascetics would de-breast themselves. Um, actually, hold on, hold on, Benjamin, for a second. Um, and uh, and I mean, he, he said some things that, that Jesus, um, that we know in the Gospels, um, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, would never say. But the thing is, is that the earliest of these... Gnostic texts um, was written near the end of the second century, so around 200, which is the Gospel of Thomas. It was written in Syriac in a completely different culture. Um, and so, um, you know, whereas the Gospel, I think the Gospel of Judas was written in like the fourth century or something like that in a completely different culture. And so, um, uh, this one scholar in that book, Reason for God, uh, says it'd be like somebody in 19th century Ohio writing a document um, uh, for the authority of King George in England or something like that, you know? Um, it's, 
it's uh, the, the sort of historical value of what it actually has to say about Jesus is completely different. And so what uh, I'm, I'm, I'm walking down a cul-de-sac, Pascal didn't ask me to walk down, but I, I think I just bring that, bring that point up to say that um, if we only had the, what the Gnostic gospel said of Jesus, then, then it would truly, then it would, then it would be true that what we have is um, some accurate details about this guy named Jesus, but a lot of just kind of fictionalized sort of retellings that have no root in history. But that's not really the way that the, gospel, the gospels are, are um, actually are, and we have good reason to believe that these go back to these eyewitness accounts. Yeah, yeah Benjamin. My question is, yeah, I, I've already talked to you a little bit about this, but what if he had just, um, what if Jesus had just, um, you know, that, I know, yeah, I know, as we talked about earlier, maybe the Lord would raise him from the dead, but what if, um, he was just like, um, sort of trying to shift him and say, dude, you're not exactly, you know, you're not, Really, the son of God. He's like, oh, I have all this power, and I have all this sort of authority. I'm gathering people together, and they're believing, and I have a cause, and it's really good, and I'm really high in all this glory. Hey, don't don't take another bite until you finish your question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, I'm, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm just so smart, and I'm, I, I must be the son of. God, the son of man, like, giving himself titles, and then yeah. people are believing those causes, and then they're, they're so yeah. unaware that actually he's, like, sort of full of himself. Like, he is very close and bonded to God, but then all the same he is sort of full of himself. Okay, so, so your question is, um, how do we know that um, Jesus wasn't this, like, powerful man of God who did miracles, but then eventually, like, went too far and started believing he was the son of God and started believing he was more important than he was. Yeah. Um, and then and then kind of went wrong in that way. Yeah. Um, and, and, uh, and, and I'll just say what I, what I had said to you earlier, which is um, um, if, that, if that's really what happened with Jesus, um, I don't think it would be likely that God would raise him from the dead as a way of... Uh, the way that God, you know, when God raises Jesus from the dead, it's it's God's way. It's the Father's way of saying um, what He said about Himself. Um, I I give the thumbs up to, and what He said He accomplished on the cross, I give the thumbs up to. And and so um, if he if he was uh, if he got really prideful, um, um, since since you're asking a Bible question, I'll answer it in a Bible way. If he got a really prideful, like Satan, you know, got really prideful and, and thought of himself more highly than he was. You know, it says in the scriptures that he was cast down. Um, God wouldn't want to validate or vindicate the things uh, that Jesus had said about himself. But that's what would have happened when he rose from the dead. Um, All right. Well, let's give somebody else a chance yeah. to ask a question, okay? Yeah. On the uh, issue of folks who, you know, question whether even the authors be themselves believed what they were writing, Yeah. Um, how persuasive do you think um, uh, is the death of the martyrs, and in particular those who are eyewitnesses? Um, yeah. <coughs> yeah, I think it, I think I think the death of the martyrs is 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 quite persuasive in the sense of um, when you're willing to kind of pay that that ultimate cost. I I also just want to say like just backing up for a second that if you like I I've been reading the Apostle Paul like very closely for many years now, 
And whatever you believe about the guy, you know, a lot of people don't like Paul. But whatever you believe about the guy, the guy definitely believed in God and definitely believed that all people were going to have to answer to God for the lives that they lived and for the things that they said. So not just that Paul was beheaded, but um, Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, we've been found to be misrepresenting God. Like, and, and, and I know that that doesn't sound very persuasive in like the 21st century where there's all kinds of skeptics going around, but like this guy truly believed he was going to have to answer to his creator for the things that he was saying about Jesus, you know? And then you have to say, well, why would he think that he saw the resurrected Jesus? Because he obviously believed he did see him. You know, um, this guy who was, you know, so zealous for the faith that he was persecuting Christians before. Why would he think that? And you could think, if it was maybe one person, you could think, well, maybe he just had some sort of weird dream and his heart felt warm and he just kind of started to feel like, man, maybe Jesus is really alive, you know? Or maybe he saw some sort of vision and it was just like a one-time thing for him or something like that. But the fact that it wasn't just him, but it was dozens. In fact, it was hundreds of people who said this. And so many of them were willing to be put to death, um, which actually, their willingness to be put to death for the testimony about the resurrection actually goes with the resurrection as well because they weren't really worried about whether or not they were going to have eternal life or not. Um, you know, which you would be <laughs> if your sort, of, uh, your, your sort of final worldview is like, yeah, as soon as I die, I'm annihilated for, forever, you know, or, or whatever. Um, or or if, if you truly believe you're going to meet your maker like this first century Pharisee, Paul, did, he truly believed he was going to meet his maker when he died. And the idea that a man like Paul, if anybody spent a lot of time getting to know Paul, is like the idea that a man like that would be intentionally lying about God, um, you know, intentionally spreading these stories just to lie, um, becomes really preposterous. Um, especially when you consider that being like uh, doubled over many, many times by the other not authors of the New Testament or even people in the New Testament who weren't, who weren't themselves authors. So. Um, maybe one more question from somebody who hasn't asked, and, and I'll, come, I'll come to your table and see if you have more questions after this. Does anybody else have any other questions? Well, cool. Sounds like your questions for me are done, so um, we can continue to discuss at our table.